Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Welcome to Reasons to be Cheerful, the podcast that explores the bright side of the world's most innovative technologies. I'm Ed, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff. Hey there, Ed. Today we have a very special guest with us, ChatGPT. That's right, Jeff. For those of our listeners who may not be familiar, ChatGPT is a powerful AI language model developed by OpenAI. It's been making waves in a variety of fields from edu... Right, okay, Jeff, let's stop here. Yeah, okay. So so what what we typed into ChatGPT was, yeah. can you write us an intro script for the Reason to be Cheerful podcast? And I, I don't know if it quite captured our essence there. Do, do you think it didn't have my soup in it because I wasn't making soup before 2021 <laughs> when, when, when ChatGPT seems to go up to? This is a good theory. You've never before said, I'm Ed, and with me as always is my co-host, Jeff. I think that was what Wayne would say in Wayne's world. I'm I Wayne, know. and with me as always is my co-host, Garth. Uh, yeah. Would I prefer to be Wayne or Garth? Just let me know. I think you're more of a Wayne. Right. Not. Perhaps we need to say what ChatGPT is, Jeff. Yes, we, we mentioned it last week. It was released towards the end of last year, and it's AI software that you can interact with in a very human way. It can generate vast amounts of text and it, it's learning from everything it's read up until the year 2021. So it can write poetry, for example, in the style of any particular poet you can think of because it would scrape all their lyrics and then combine it with what it knows about poetry. It could write dissertations, theoretically. Um, it could write advertising copy. So it can generate text in a, in a very human, artificially intelligent way. 
We asked it some other things as well. We tapped into it. There's a segment of the podcast Reasons to be Cheerful where both Ed and Jeff provide their reason to be cheerful each week. It's usually light-hearted. Ed is a fan of open water swimming, attempting to cook, talking about energy policy and cycling around London, waving at his fans. Jeff is more likely to be visiting attractions <laughs> around the city, spending time with his wife and son and also working hard on various projects. Can you give us an example of a reason to be cheerful for both Ed and Jeff? To which it said, yeah. sure, for Ed... A reason to be cheerful could be that he successfully cooked a dish from a foreign cuisine yeah. that he'd never attempted before and it turned out to be delicious. I think that's a bit far-fetched. No, I think this is quite good. And then it says, uh, what type of foreign cuisine might that be? The foreign cuisine Ed successfully cooked could be something like Japanese sushi or Italian risotto, which are both known for their complexity and precision. Ed might have struggled with getting rice for sushi to the perfect consistency or rolling the sushi tightly without it falling apart. I mean, it does also say, sorry to point this out, for Jeff, a reason to be cheerful could be that he landed a new exciting media project that yeah. he'd been wanting to work on for a long time and there's a potential to be a breakthrough in his career. Yeah, I, d- I don't think so. That's clearly got data well before 2021. Rachel asked it to write a poem as well in the style of an Ed Miliband speech about the podcast. Reasons to be cheerful is more than a show. It's a beacon of hope in the darkest of hours. A reminder that progress is still in our power and that <gasps> technology like chat GPT empowers. I think it's a little bit self-referential. I think, I think, I think it's power obviously, and empowers. I wouldn't rhyme those two It's also words. learnt too much from my self-referentialism, I think. <laughs> uh, uh, well, anyway. I mean, it makes our life a lot easier if we can just get chat GPT to churn out the fact that you've been cooking and going cold water swimming. So just tell you what we're talking about on the episode this week. Uh and this is written by ChatGPT. Welcome to our latest episode of Reasons to be Cheerful, where we'll be discussing the development of ChatGPT and its potential impact on society. Joining us today are Rory Kethlin Jones, a technology journalist who covers the intersection of technology and society, Dr. Kate Devlin, a leading researcher in the field of human-computer interaction, and Andrew Strait, an expert in the field of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Together, we'll explore the capabilities and limitations of ChatGPT and what its development means for the future of human-computer interaction. And I should say that I was flying solo uh, this week, wasn't I? Yes, I I had to uh, recuse myself. Do you have a non-ChatGPT-generated reason to be cheerful? Yes, I do. I came to a stunning realisation this weekend, which is, in my eagerness to please, to please you, I think you've... You've given me a new hobby for 2023, it is 2023, which is to make soups and yes. other substances for you. So I have made a Mexican bean soup, which I was unable to share with you because we weren't able to meet this week. You sent me a photograph of it, though. It, it looked good. I uh, I sent it back with some annotations. How did you interpret my applause emoji in reply to the things you pointed out? Passive-aggressive? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the best kind of aggressive. <laughs> Rachel was very nice about the soup. You, however, just sort of pointed out that I hadn't served it very neatly. <laughs> it's a good cop, bad cop strategy. Yeah. I just want to push you to be the very best that you can. Yeah. You know, you see these high pressure cooking shows with people like Gordon Ramsay. Yeah. It's tough love. That's all it is, Ed. Yeah. Do you think it's sort of sufficiently encouraging? Is that how you'd react if Gene had made a soup? No, but he is six and you're in your 50s. <laughs> What was particularly galling was you spent a lot of time creating arrows to show where I hadn't <laughs> properly served the soup. You went to a lot of trouble to, to be kind of an ass, really. <laughs> anyway, what's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? It's a podcast. You don't need to listen to the whole thing. But have you ever heard about a podcast called Dead Eyes? It's an American thing. No. It's a guy who's had a middling career as an actor. And when he was fresh out of drama school, he got cast in Band of Brothers 
by Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks was directing this thing oh. and at a very young age he's thinking this is my big break oh, this, this, yeah. this, this is, is ringing bells actually right it's, 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 I think it's maybe a year or two old at this yeah. point. And then what happens is he's so excited. He's telling all his friends and family, this is it. I've been casting this thing. And then his agents get in touch and say, oh, they want you to um, go back in for a second audition because Tom Hanks has seen your tape and he thinks you've got dead eyes. So he has to go back and, and audition in front of Tom Hanks. And, and then he finds out that he hasn't got the part and is, is devastated. And... He's done this podcast series about like career disappointments and careers and ups and downs. And Is there a reason you're you recommending this to me, Jeff? <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it, it, and it's not soup related. It's not soup related. <laughs> Somewhat recently, I think it came to its conclusion. Guess who his guest was for the final episode? Tom Hanks. Yes who has no memory of it whatsoever at all, because why would he? And it's had this massive effect on somebody's life. And and actually, it's just really interesting. And I'm not a great one for celebrity interview podcasts, but Tom Hanks, you've got such an idea of what he's like. He's very big personality. Very nice man. Just very, very nice. Says. Yeah, and, and he's not on in this podcast. and it, it, It's still nice, but he's not turning it on for the microphone. Did you see that film with Tom Hanks? Now, I'm going to... I'm sort of... Forrest Gump. No, 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 no. Um, big. Oh, stop being an arse. The oh. money pit. I'm trying to help you. Just give me one second. A beautiful day in the neighbourhood. No, I d- about Mr Rogers. You must watch it, Jeff. But honestly, it's it's really lovely film. Yeah, about a beloved uh, American children's TV yeah. presenter. Who, who played the, by Tom Hanks. And I, there was a very yeah. good piece in the New York Times at the time it came out, really, about the similarities between Mr Rogers and Tom Hanks. Everyone says he's such a nice man. That's what everyone says about you. Oh. I tried to correct them when I got the time. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, I'm delighted to say that to begin our conversation, we are joined by technology royalty. I think that's the only way you can describe him. Rory Kethlin Jones, former technology correspondent of the BBC. And I would say internet dog royalty now. Oh my goodness. Rory. I was so convinced, Ed, that you wanted to talk to me about Sophie from Romania. Come on, let's. For those who have. A, I confess that I don't spend lots of time on Twitter, so I was unaware of Sophie. I must be the one person in the country unaware of Sophie until Rachel told me about her. And basically, I didn't want to read anything about ChatGPT. I just wanted to know more about Sophie. So go on. For those who don't know, Rory, tell us about Sophie. Quick summary. We had a much-loved rescue dog that died a year ago. and we spent Cabbage. Cabbage. And we spent a long time deciding whether to get a new one. We did. We got one from Romania. Uh, She arrived the Saturday before Christmas. We expected her to be a bit nervous, but she was absolutely terrified. And since then, she's spent nearly all of her time behind our sofa only emerging for, you know, vital tasks. Um, yeah. And it's been a bit of a, I think, what's known as a journey. Um, and I've tweeted about her with the hashtag Sophie from Romania, and people have been just massively engaged. But it's what people needed. I had a huge breakthrough about half an hour ago. I would be doing this from the kitchen, but I wanted to give her a bit of peace. She yeah. actually came out while I was here. She's more devoted to my wife, Diane, than me. She came out. It was a big moment. She came out, came up to me while I was making toast, wanted to sort of engage. And then when I sat down with my toast, she did a massive pee all over the kitchen floor, which was not so great. Uh, So I've just cleaned up after her and come to speak to you. (laughs) I mean, it is extraordinary. Anyway, look, we might have to get you back on to to update on Sophie's progress. Now, let's get on to the main order of business. So for those who haven't um, 
sort of been on the planet for the last two or three months. Can you explain what ChatGPT is? Well, it's a chatbot. And we're all getting used to using chatbots, aren't we, in various contexts? You know, your, your bank, your retailers and so on, often asking you to sort of type in a few questions and get sort of programmed answers. But it's a chatbot on a completely different level because it produces the most convincing text in response to queries that is imaginable. It's what's called a generative system, obviously an AI system. It's been taught by huge volumes of text on the internet, but it actually, it's creative. It's not, it, so one of those bank chatbots, it will have been programmed to give the same answer to every time some particular word comes up. This one kind of goes off on flights of fancy, writes, writes whole articles, and is extraordinarily convincing. I saw one example of teachers beginning to use it rather scarily to write end of term reports and we know that they are slightly formulaic oh my goodness. but uh, d did it rather well now you put into it a thing about me did you yeah i thought here's an example I, i've done this before yeah. with it uh write a profile yeah. uh, of ed Miliband. sorry i will stop rustling the paper so what is fascinating about this is it looks really conventional. You think, oh, that's pretty convincing. Ed Miliband is a yeah. British politician, member of the Labour Party, yeah. served as the leader of the Labour Party from 2020. Yeah. Then I read it twice and then I thought, I went back and thought, oh, there's some interesting things here. So in 2005, Miliband was elected as the MP for Doncaster North and quickly rose through the ranks of the Labour Party, becoming a member of the Shadow Cabinet in 2007. In 2008, ah. he was appointed as the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change. Yeah. So... Uh, it Interesting error. Why the shadow cabinet when yeah. actually Labour's in power? Yes. Uh, another one, well, you may disagree with this. Um, he was elected leader of the Labour Party, uh, focused on issues such as inequality, climate yeah. change, cost of living. However, despite a strong campaign, the Labour Party lost the 2015 general election. Oh, well, that's nice. well, what, I do agree what's with that. What's that strong campaign? Was oh, with that? Stop <laughs> it, Rory. Uh, I think Chat GPT is absolutely right. And then one more thing, it's it's, which is yeah. weird. Ed Miliband resigned as leader of the Labour Party, yeah. but remained as the MP for Doncaster North until 2015. As far as I know, you're still there. Yeah, that is really weird. It, it's, it then says you do all sorts of things. You're a visiting professor at LSE, contributing editor of the New Statesman. Not a mention of this podcast. Hang on, contributing editor of the New Statesman? Yes, are you not? I'm not. Oh, well. That's so weird. Yeah. This is one of the things that is actually fascinating but rather dangerous about it because it is incredibly convincing uh, and then chucks in complete nonsense on the side. And why? Well, because uh, it's finding patterns in language and sometimes those patterns will be accurate uh, and sometimes they won't. And it hasn't got sense. Just to be clear about this, I mean, chat GPT basically reflects what is out there, doesn't it? Well, it does, but this is the latest version of this kind of model from this consortium, OpenAI, uh, one of whose founders was Elon Musk. They're getting more advanced each time. This one had a lot of, I think, human labelling. You know, they looked at results and and kind of interrogated them and said, no, that's right and that's wrong. So they are getting more and more sophisticated. Therefore, more exciting or scary 
whichever is your choice. But there are still, you know, big holes in them. Rory, how does it actually work? I will read you what it says, because I asked it that. It said it was trained using a variety of the transformer architecture on a data set of over 570 gigabytes of text data. So it takes what's out there, it scrapes what's out there and tries to... It it, it reads the internet. It reads the internet. And it's not just, it's not looking for facts. It's looking for words that, when you put one word, what word comes next? So... When you put Ed Miliband, it often finds was a leader of the Labour Party. Or if you put the cat sat, it will quite often find on the mat. It's like predictive. It's sort of a very, very sophisticated version of predictive tech. Exactly. It's interesting you should say that. I did a story years ago with Stephen Hawking where he ended up predicting that AI would kill us all. And the occasion of that was that his technology had been updated using a form of AI from a company called SwiftKey. Uh, And this was something we all completely take for granted. It was basically predictive text. His, His system of communication was incredibly slow and they speeded it up a bit by learning his speech patterns and predicting what he might want to say next. And, of course, he got to choose. So, in effect, it's predictive text uh, on steroids with a whole lot of other new machine learning techniques laden on the top. And how does it handle bias and ethical concerns? Well, this is really interesting because there's been a lot of trouble with this sort of thing in the past that, you know, it's kind of garbage in, garbage out. Whatever you put into a computer system is bound to be biased in one direction or another. Or prejudice or or bigotry. Um, And Microsoft had to remove one chatbot after it started going on white supremacist rants on on the internet. Interestingly, I've just been reading complaints from the other side. Republicans in the United States have been describing this as a woke AI because they wanted it to write a critique of drag queen story time in the United States where drag queens are reading stories to, to kids. Yeah. It refused to do that. So obviously we don't get to see right right behind the scenes, but there there has obviously been work to try and avoid particular controversial areas where it basically just shuts down. It It's, it's like a dinner party where somebody doesn't really want to have a huge, a a huge rouse. Let, let's move on. Let's not talk about that. Now, we've been sort of talking about some of the things it can do. It can offer very um, fair-minded commentary on my 2015 campaign. But people have seen, I suspect, on the internet, my favourite is in the style of the Bible, explain how to get a peanut butter sandwich stuck in your VCR out of it. Oh, I haven't uh, seen that anyway. one. That sounds great. But, I mean, the utility of that is kind of quite limited, really, for sort of human yeah. kind of welfare. What What are the main uses for, of it, really? Well, there has been speculation that this could be a huge threat to Google, that it could be a more effective search engine. There are all sorts of potential uses for sort of automated writing. I mean, news organisations which are already using AI to do very basic stuff. Company results, for example, which very much follow a template. Really boring writing can be done quite effectively by AI. Legal work, writing out legal contracts in in a particular style. I think there's a lot, there's possibly too much speculation about its immediate utility here. We're on a, a long journey and there will be a lot of false starts. People have been talking to me about, for instance, uh, AI in journalism for a long time. There are conferences about it every year, and I've yet to see it make a huge impact. Isn't one area where it could really make a difference is in 
in sort of medicine because the thing this can do that in a way that's better than humans is take a huge amount of data and sift it and analyze it, uh, you know, in a millions of times quicker than humans can, you know, patterns of disease. Yeah, I'm not so sure that this kind of uh, AI chatbot is is what will work there. But I do a, a newsletter about health and technology, which is a big interest of mine. And there's an awful lot of work on AI in drug discovery, for example, an incredibly lengthy and costly exercise. And if you can use machine learning techniques, which are similar to what we're seeing here, to, for instance, look at a whole bunch of different combinations of compounds and eliminate the ones which are kind of complete duds and say, concentrate your fire on these ones, that could be incredibly valuable. In fact, we saw a price put on that recently. BioNTech, the German company that produced the Pfizer vaccine, bought a London-based AI company called InstaDeep. And InstaDeep does exactly that, amongst other things. It helps advance drug discovery. This kind of thing, I think nailing down a precise application for it and a monetizable application for it, uh, it's going to take a bit of time, but there's a lot, a lot of excitement around it. And do you feel finally that it has does represent a big leap forward? Well, yes, because we've seen earlier versions of it and it's better. I mean, it is getting better and better. It may eventually learn to sort of be a bit more critical about your 2015 campaign. Uh, but, you know, it's getting there. OK, well, look, Rory, it's been great to speak to you both about Sophie and about ChatGPT. And um, we will stay tuned on both. Excellent. Look forward to it. We're joined now by Dr. Kate Devlin, who's reader in Artificial Intelligence and Society at the Department of Digital Humanities at King's College London. Kate, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be here. When you used ChatGPT for the first time, what, what was your initial reaction to it? And, and, and what do you think it meant for the kind of role of artificial intelligence and the, and the advances? I was very impressed by the coherency of it. So it comes across as conversational, uh, something that seems to make sense. But if you scratch below the surface, it doesn't always make sense. But it has that impression of being uh, an, an intelligent sounding uh, piece of text that's been generated. So I think this is quite profound in terms of artificial intelligence and advances that have been made recently. So this emerged in sort of late November last year. So in the space of just a few months, we've seen this big shift to, towards um, AI, machine learning, that can generate plausible sounding responses that sound as if another human has written them. What do you think the implications are of a development like ChatGPT? It has quite far-reaching significance. People are starting to use it for things like coursework in schools and universities, but you could use it more widely for, for journalism, for copywriting. It has lots of applications. Uh, the trouble is trying to decide whether or not what it produces is true. So there is also a negative side where we could maybe see that being used to generate uh, misinformation as well. What are some examples of that? Well, if you give it a prompt, say, you know, write me a story in the style of uh, a news report, it could generate something. You give it a topic, say, I want to hear about uh, vaccines, for example. It could generate that, but it doesn't have access to information past 2021. It won't have the most up-to-date information, and it won't always uh, give you the right information. And where it doesn't know something, it's guessing, it's filling in the blanks. So you could be producing an article that reads really well, but has misinformation in it or disinformation in it. In terms of education, what do you think are the implications of ChatGPT for student learning and student assessment? 
immediately everyone's got really worried. Are students just going to go and put their assignment prompts into ChatGPT and have that generate essays for them? I think this is something we shouldn't be too worried about because if we're setting assignments in universities that are that easily done via AI, we need to rethink our assignments and we shouldn't be expecting students to produce things that can be done that easily. Uh, and we should be encouraging people to think critically. And that includes about the tools that they use. So I think that we have to come up with a way of assessing students that may limit access to these tools or that might just embrace these tools and look for ways to test other things, test other forms of learning. Obviously, Kate, one of the things that's been thrown up by ChatGPT, certainly on the internet, is people saying this will mean that plagiarism is rife and or, or is undetectable. Is that true? Plagiarism is something that we have to tackle in universities in general anyway. And of course, with the internet, it's so easy for people to lift sources and intentionally or unintentionally reproduce those without accurately citing them. I think with ChatGPT, it seems almost too easy, right? You just give it your, your title that you want the essay for, you give it a prompt and it will generate it for you. But actually, there are ways around this. So GPT itself can detect uh, information, uh, words that have been written. So there's a bit of sort of self-detection going on there. But I think we have to really redo assessments in a more meaningful way. I don't mean a return to written exams. I don't think that's fair. It's not an accessible format for assessment. But there are other things we can do. So I teach arts and humanities students how to program and they get very concerned because at the start I say don't reinvent anything go out there and find it online and that's very much against the way that they've been taught to date but those tools are out there for us to be used so if we can incorporate them and get the students to say where they've got their information and how it's worked and why they've used that that is a start so it's not just about detecting plagiarism it's also about reducing the need for things to be plagiarized in the first place and talk to us about this issue of trust and how that comes into the debate about artificial intelligence. Trust is a really interesting thing. It's kind of fundamental to how we relate to the technology we create. And I'm part of a, a big project called Trusted Autonomous Systems. It's a UKRI-funded project that looks at how we can build systems that are trustworthy. So systems that may have some kind of safety critical element, perhaps an autonomous vehicle or maritime navigation. But also, how can we build systems that people invest trust into? How can we be sure that people feel like they trust things? And people are going to be more accepting of technology if they feel safe around it, if they feel that it is working in a positive way, and if we can build tech that is used for beneficial purposes. So I think it's really, really key to how we interact with tech, to have that feeling of trust underpinning it all. How do we make that happen, though? There are a number of ways that we can build trust into systems. So we have things like verification, where we can test software, test the AI, test the robots, make sure they do what they're supposed to do without deviating from it, without causing any harm. But we can also study the ways in which people interact with that technology. What are the psychological aspects or the emotional aspects of how we think about tech and how we engage with it? And that's a really, really fascinating area. It's an area that I particularly love. So we are living with it in this world where we use AI every single day. Anyone carrying a smartphone is using AI daily. We're getting fed recommendations from streaming services. We're using maps to get through traffic or to get on public transport. So we've got to feel 
confident in it and we've got to feel trust in it. Isn't there something here about recognising the dangers, but also thinking about the uses of it? I mean, I'm quite struck that there is quite a sense of panic in in the response to chat GPT. I mean, a sort of sense of wonderment, but also a sense of anxiety. I mean, don't we need to be thinking what are the things that this could be useful for, you know, which will mean that some things that we have to do at the moment, we don't have to do anymore, or at least ChatGPT or its successors can kind of help us. That's right. A certain amount of anxiety and panic is pretty natural when it comes to emerging technologies. And that has happened right the way from the first industrial revolution to today. A lot of that panic stems from our fear that we're going to get replaced by machines, that loss of agency or that fear that things will get out of control. So that's a perfectly natural thing to feel. But yes, we should we should build tech to try and take the jobs off us that are dangerous, that are dull, that are repetitive, things that can be automated. But we don't want to do that and lose sight of people. And I think it's really, really key. And most people in the AI community will agree. It's really key to keep humans in the loop for all of this, to have people involved in all, each step of the process. I'm quite struck that when DeepMind invented AlphaGo, which was this computer to play the game Go, I think I'm right in saying that it started to play in ways that nobody had ever seen before. I mean, presumably there's a possibility that this the sort of an analysis of data and the assimilation of information at such speed will throw up things that humans wouldn't have been able to discern. That's right. One of the really wonderful things about machine learning, about unsupervised machine learning, when you feed information to an algorithm, to a computer program, it can see uh, and, and detect patterns that humans would never be able to detect. It, it depends on the size of the data. So if you've got huge, huge amounts of data and huge amounts of computer power, it can get in there and really see where those patterns are on a scale that we couldn't possibly imagine. And that's a really, really powerful thing. And yes, with, with AlphaGo that beat the world's best Go player, one of the things that was said was that's not a move that a human would make. So yes, it seems almost otherworldly to us because it's, it has so much capability at such a speed and at such uh, vast levels, volumes of data, that these are things that would escape us. Let me just ask you, because you work a lot in this area, do you feel when these developments like ChatGPT take place, do you feel sort of optimistic uh, about the future? Do you think, do you sort of kind of roll your eyes and think, oh, you know, this is dangerous? Or, or, or do you sort of feel more net positive? I am a tech optimist, but I'm quite a cautious one. I think that right. overall, we can use technology like artificial intelligence to, to do good, to have benefits. We've seen that already in things like uh, the medical fields, in agriculture, in energy efficiency. And we know that AI has not been ruled out equally. Uh, the global south is missing from the development landscape. It, it's a very technocratic technology that's based in Silicon Valley. Uh, and there are huge, huge problems with bias, the social problems there as well. So I, I'm optimistic in that if we go forward ethically and we center humans and we make sure to try and be aware of the problems, then, then we can benefit. Okay, well, look, it's a fascinating area. And lots more to talk about. Uh, Kate Devlin, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To carry on the conversation, I'm delighted to say that we're now joined by Andrew Strait, who is Associate Director of the Ada Lovelace Institute, which is a research institute that wants to make sure that data and AI are used to the benefit of people and society. Thanks so much for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me, Ed. Well, I, I described your mission statement just then. How do we envision a world where that is the case? That's a very good question. I think one of the many things that we think about at Ada Lovis Institute is, is the question of how can you, you make data and AI work for people in society. A key component of that is talking to people to understand uh, the ways in which AI and data are impacting their lives from the very big, uh, massive ways to the mundane ways. It also focuses on studying the ways in which uh, policy and regulation can help create better safeguards. And lastly, we focus on industry practice. How can you create better practices for how these systems are produced to uh, center people at the heart of those kinds of systems. And what are some of the things about AI that you think, the the Lovelace Institute, that you think we should be worried about? Oh, that's a very big question, Ed. I, I think there's quite a few things that I think keep us up at night um, in the way that AI systems are being developed currently. One of the things that we, we tend to see a lot of is a a lack of attention or consideration to the ways in which these systems might impact people in society by the time that they are being developed or procured. To give a few examples that are relevant to our conversation today, I think one of the things that we're very concerned with are the societal impacts of, of very complex AI systems um, on areas like the public sector, how that might change the way that government is um, delivering its services and the relationship between citizen and state. We're also very concerned with questions around biometrics and the ways in which uh, various forms of sensitive data are collected and used. And lastly, we're very concerned with um, a range of questions around the environmental implications of some of these technologies, how they can require a lot of energy and a lot of compute to create systems that may not benefit um, everyone in society. Locate ChatGPT in this this kind of analysis that the Ada Lovelace Institute has. 
So yeah, so it's it's an emerging, uh, relatively new set of technologies. These are um, called many things, from generative models to large language models. But broadly, these are a type of AI system that is a bit different from previous kinds of systems, and that they have general capabilities. So you can ask this kind of system to write poetry, to produce an essay. You can ask it to code and to generate code for you. There are variations of these models which can generate images from text prompts. So these kinds of Technologies are just in their infancy; they're just coming out and, and, and are emerging. But they represent a bit of a paradigm shift for uh, um, the normal kind of um, narrow AI systems which we tend to deal with in our day-to-day work. There are issues with how they are produced that we are very concerned with, and, and are drawing, looking at in, in some of our research. There are issues with how they can impact different communities or different segments of, of society. And then there's um, also, I think, really interesting political economy questions about who these systems benefit and, and what kind of power these systems are creating for large tech firms. What did you think as somebody who's a sort of an expert in this area when you saw Chat GPT? Well, it's it's a very impressive seeming technology. A range of different people can access it through a very simple user interface. But I think the first thing that we thought of was was a core question, which is what's the kind of hidden labor behind the creation of these types of, of systems? So thinking about uh, the ways in which the, the, these systems rely on massive quantities of data, um, some of that may be copyrighted, some of that may be sensitive data that contains people's personal information. We're already seeing some of those issues play out where Getty Images has just in the last few days filed a lawsuit against Stability AI, along with several artists, um, for scraping their, their copyright information and using it for a commercial product. And Microsoft and OpenAI have faced a lawsuit for scraping code from GitHub. There's also concerns around labor issues. These models involve massive amounts of people who are coding and training the data that feeds the system. And that, that labor is very time intensive. It can be very traumatizing. Some of this material is very toxic and requires um, content moderators to go through this at very low wages to clean a data set up. That's so interesting. And just on the guardrails in ChatGPT, have they done enough to prevent the generation of harmful or offensive material answers? It has some guardrails in place. They will prevent certain kinds of, of harmful material from uh, being generated if you put in an, an, a prompt asking for offensive content or asking for um, potentially dangerous kinds of material. But uh, there have been some documented ways to easily bypass these safeguards. And that raises a really challenging problem for developers of these kinds of systems. And I mean, presumably there's a lot of this material out there on the internet already. Yes, these systems tend to be trained from material on the internet. Uh, some of the precursors to ChatGPT um, from OpenAI are trained on databases that are scraped from sites like Reddit. So if you imagine the worldview of right. Reddit users, that tends to be white male users. It tends to have a very strong language bias towards English. And it means these systems you know, tend to reflect answers to questions that we, you would find on these kinds of, of websites. As these language models grow and scrape more information from the web, you have, in theory, more of a reflection of wider parts of the web. But these are systems that are mimicking and um, parroting back the ways that we would talk online and in our, in our online discourse. I think that takes us to this phrase, the alignment problem, the idea that the challenge is to align the goals of a, an AI system with humans' goals or the, the right human goals or values. Just tell, talk to us a little bit, if you would, about that. 
Yeah, so th- this is a challenge in, in any kind of AI system is how do you keep uh, systems that are black box and opaque aligned to the objectives and goals of the humans who it's meant to be serving. Um, so part of that problem is that these systems often struggle to uh, understand what it is that they should be parroting back. The understanding is something that Professor Emily Bender has talked about quite a bit in her criticism of, of these systems. They don't really understand the relationships between some of the concepts that they are trying to to generate. So if you ask it the classic question of what's the which weighs more, 10 kilograms of feathers or 10 kilograms of gold, it will probably get the answer wrong right? Um, because it loses any sense of, of awareness between those those concepts. It's focusing on, on one part of those those uh, embeddings. The, if you kind of maximize that question out, it, it again gets really challenging to keep these systems aligned to the actual interests of humans. They're not very good at identifying um, what it is that you want or what your objectives are outside of the prompt that you've given it. Um, so that's an inherent limitation with these kinds of complex systems. You know, one is bound to ask, is the problem chat GPT or is the problem sort of the way we are and it reflecting our biases. I, I think it's a bit of both. You know, there's no doubt that humans have their own biases and, and uh, the ways in which we represent ourselves online and the kinds of data which is represented online uh, contain significant biases. The concerning bit is if those are then reflected and amplified in the kinds of products that are built on top of that data. So in the case of, of some of these generative models, one of the things that has been quite alarming is the kinds of representational biases that can be reflected, um, both from the data and from the way these systems are trained. Uh, Lenza, which is one of these portrait generation apps, very similar to ChatGPT, but generates portraits based on some of your, your Im- images input into it has been shown to generate very sexualized images of women. This is a study that Melissa Heikola and Olivia Snow um, wrote about, um, where they sort of were putting in their own images and finding that it was reflecting very hyper-sexualized versions of themselves that did not appear to be reflected when male images were input. So some of that is some of the biases that exist in society, but it's also uh, an issue of data, uh, of which data sets are these these systems being trained on, and which version of reality are they reflecting I think that's the, the more concerning thing that we see in some of these these systems that are being developed. Now, the other thing, which I can't quite believe, but is ChatGPT being used in the case of therapy? Yes. Yeah, so there is a, a very alarming instance this week in which uh, a developer who runs a mental health therapy chat system, which, uh, as I understand it, is mainly aimed at adolescents, was using and experimenting with ChatGPT to generate prompts uh, for human therapist to respond with. So the idea was that they were running this experiment, they wrote it up uh, on Twitter, and their findings uh, from their Twitter response were that as soon as people found out that the responses were from ChatGPT, they felt like it was a bit meaningless, like they, they lost that connection to a therapist. Uh, the more alarming things, and I think this example is very telling of, of how technology is consumed in our society, is that this person saw no ethical concerns with beta testing a emerging technology on people who are in probably one of the toughest, most vulnerable moments of their lives. That is a pretty alarming thing in itself, but that was only made possible by the fact that the system was made openly accessible to anyone to use. So in a way, it's it's also something that, you know, I... I would have encouraged uh, the developers of ChatGPT to seriously consider. We're seeing this also used in the ways in which it, this open access uh, way of, of, of launching the system has impacted educators. The 
class assay has sort of been has ceased to exist since the system was was uh, launched, and you're seeing schools throughout the U.S. and the U.K. all try to now switch to new models of writing essays, knowing that um, it's impossible for them to identify if something that's been submitted has been generated through ChatGPT. So these systems are having direct impacts are being um, used in ways that may not be entirely ethical, responsible, and very thoughtfully considered. We're sounding quite negative about all of this. I mean, what are the upsides of something like chat GPT, do you think? I think there are some really fascinating upsides um, to to these uses of, of these kinds of technologies. One is that they could make menial tasks like data entry much more efficient and quicker. So I think that's that's the some of the applications where you could see this having minimal risks downstream, but having high impacts in terms of saving time. But I would say that probably the more positive things about these systems I see is the really excellent discussion happening within the AI community about these kinds of ethical risks and how do you responsibly release these kinds of systems. So I think that's, to me, what I see as a notable difference in the development of this technology versus previous ones, is there's a bit more of an awareness of those risks and a bit more of an intention to respond to them. Because we're in the sort of business of cheer in this podcast, I don't want to sort of impose cheerfulness where it's not merited. But as you, as somebody who's right inside the the guts of this, what's your kind of really positive scenario for where this technology could go? I think one really fantastic potential upside of these kinds of systems is that they can augment and complement the kind of work that um, humans are doing that's, that's quite menial and challenging. So um, Professor Arvind Abranian has, has talked about the ways in which these systems are fantastic at helping to generate fictional content or content that can um, easily be fact-checked by a human. It's a way to augment a creative process or augment the kind of menial work that, that you might be doing. So I, I see great potential with these systems in that area. I was speaking with a, a, a friend the other day about who's a, a video game designer and was talking about just the need to generate very quick um, concept art for, for kind of thinking through a particular scene and how these systems can speed up a process that would take them about two weeks and do it in a matter of seconds. So there is a, certainly a time-saving aspect to this, and, and I think certain applications of this could be highly beneficial, but it remains to be seen if these systems are able to fulfill that, those kinds of uh, time-saving tasks. And I, I think that's the exciting thing we'll see in the, in the months ahead. Look, Andrew Strait, it's obviously really, really important work that you're doing at the Ada Lovelace Institute. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Ed. It was great to be here. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Whoa, we're in the outro. Now, Jeff, I have a question for Mm. you because I think this will amuse you. You know when you go to a hotel and they have those and you go to breakfast? I do. Uh, in the canteen and they have those things that are toasters except they're not normal toasters they're things you put the piece of bread on and it rolls oh you send it on you send it on a little journey yes yes yes. yeah yeah okay uh well the the saturday before last i uh was in salford doing bbc breakfast and i thought i'd go up to the canteen have myself a bit of toast and scrambled eggs very nice so have you ever noticed the problem which is that you can often put the bread on the wheelie mm. thing and it comes out it's not quite toasted yes. enough has that has that ever happened to you yes i know what you mean but if you send it around a second time it gets too toasted well if you send it around a second time 
and then it starts smoking as if it's going to go on fire and oh you worry God, you're going to oh cause a fire alarm at Salford and BBC Breakfast will have to go <laughs> on fire. <laughs> How about that? So, so basically... It, it it goes brown, but not brown enough. But it's a little... I think in retrospect, it was a little more brown than it might have been. And so then I put it on, and then it starts... As it's in the mid-trolley <laughs> thing, it starts smoking quite thoroughly. And I'm thinking... I'm going to cause a fire alarm in Salford here. I'm thinking, why if they've got very sensitive smoke alarms? It goes off, and Nagger and Charlie have their sort of show cancelled. Anyway, it was all right. I got it got away with it. Oh, I really hope there's some kind of security camera footage of you Uh, desperately trying to flap flap away smoke. Exactly, exactly. I thought you'd like that story. Oh, that's wonderful. How how can we how can we get hold of that footage? Right. Shall we thank our guests? Yes, we should. Thanks to Rory Kethlin-Jones, Dr Kate Devlin and Andrew Strait. Emma Caution produces the audio for our podcast, Rachel Barmer and Chat GPT this week, produced mm. all the content uh, with support from Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our idents. And the artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Mm. 